0: Well, good morning, Mount Airy. The pastor, our pastor has been doing a series called Unexpected Turns. Well, the fact that I am in front of you today (laughs) is an unexpected turn. Uh, This this week I've been in Dallas and Atlanta, and yesterday morning I was in Jacksonville when I got a call from the pastor asking if I could step in. And so, uh, and of course, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to do that, but it is somewhat unexpected. And so, uh, I'll tell you, we, uh, we live in a time of unexpected turns, don't we? You look at what's been in the headlines, the tragic events taking place, uh, Louisiana, Minnesota, and Dallas. Last Sunday, I was in Dallas preaching for an African-American church. And I know that many here prayed for me, and I appreciate Appreciate that very much, and um, uh, unexpected turn. But as the pastor there reminded me, said, God is never surprised, and uh, so was there for that time uh, in the, the life of that city, and with all of the things going on, with those kind of tragic events taking place here, and then um, uh, terrorist attacks and, and military coups and all the rest, the unexpected thing is the number one story in America is people playing a little video game on their phones, tracking around all over creation looking for uh, made-up creatures. So if you see somebody happen to wander in the sanctuary or over the Life Center today uh, with their phone out doing this and uh, oblivious to all else around them, uh, ask your grandkids. They'll tell, you what, uh, <laughs> they'll tell you what's going on. Well, we're going to look this morning at Mark the second chapter. Open your Bible to the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. Thomas was getting more and more uncomfortable. He was having stomach pains. He figured that it was probably because of some of the spicy foods he ate. He tended to like the spicy stuff. And so he decided he'd lay off of the spicy foods a little bit. But uh, even after trimming that, that uh, he was still having problems with some pain. He tried, tried some different over-the-counter remedies, but nothing seemed to make it better. Finally, no, he hated going to the doctor. He like, hated a doctor like you know a ha- cat hates a bath. He just uh, did not want to go. But uh, he finally made an appointment, went to see the doctor, had some tests, and after they did the test, they discovered the real problem. Thomas had a tumor. Now, all the time, Thomas thought he could fix it. He had thought he could adjust his diet, he could try some over-the-counter remedies and solve the problem, but Thomas didn't know what the real problem was. All the things he was doing to try to resolve the situation were useless because he needed to heal the real problem. Well, this story in Mark's gospel, most of us have probably heard it. In fact, uh, if we've grown up in, uh, in the church and gone to Sunday school, you've probably heard this story and even perhaps been shown pictures of, uh, of the scene that Mark describes. This is a man and his friends who were coming to Jesus to ask him to do something, but they didn't realize that what they were asking for wasn't the real solution. Look with me at Mark chapter 2 And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, they said to him, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? we never saw anything like this. Well, chances are you've heard this story before. In fact, uh, uh, as I said, if you grew up in church, I'm sure you heard the story in Sunday school at some time. In fact, you probably saw pictures of these four men holding this, uh, this pallet and having their friend that was on the bed. And they go up onto the roof. They try tried, they tried to bring him to Jesus. Already, this is early in Jesus' ministry, but already the news is out that this... Man is teaching amazing things, he's doing miracles, he's healing, and so a great crowd has shown up to try to to see him. In fact, so much so that the house where he is speaking is just jam-packed, it's crowded. And so these four men come with their friend on the pallet that they've made, and they can't get anywhere close, can't even get in the house because of the crowd that's there. And so they carry their friend up onto the roof, and they lower their friend through the roof. To be healed by Jesus. Now that is a memorable scene, isn't it? In fact, uh, I thought it might be help to visualize it. I, I asked uh, Brother Dave if we could uh, put him in a blanket and let him down from the balcony, you know, so we'd kind of have an object lesson. But he didn't seem to go for that idea. So, well, if actually if you went back to that time period and kind of what the houses were like, the average Palestinian house would would have a a roof made out of a plaster that would have been made up of sticks and thorns and mortar and earth. And so it was very easy to actually remove a section of that and then replace it later. In fact, the text literally says they unroofed the roof. Uh, And so we have this vivid story of these four faithful friends lowering their paralyzed man through the roof To be healed by Jesus. In fact I suspect you may have heard that sermon before. How these men carried their friend to Jesus. And that's a model for us. That we also should carry our friends to Jesus to be saved. I even heard one sermon. It was called four of a kind beats a full house. (laughs) That's some creative sermon titling right there. But is that what this biblical text is actually about? Are we we meant to draw from this text the idea that good friends bring their needy friend to Jesus? Well, that's certainly true, that we should do that. We we have a responsibility to bring others to Jesus, to, to know more about him. But that's not actually what this story is primarily about. This story is about how Jesus recognized the man's real need and solved that. Because you see, our day is a lot like that day. People don't always recognize what their real need is. There are folks all around us. There may be somebody here, though, somebody over in the Life Center, who's convinced, if you just had some more money in the bank, man, that would solve all of my problems. Everything would be better then. Or there might be some folks that say, man, if I just had the right husband, or if I just had the right wife, then everything in my life would be easier and better right then, would solve all my problems, then I'd be happy. There are all kinds of things that we look to in hopes that they'll fill that hole in our lives. If we just had a better job, if I just had some more friends, if I just had a a nicer house, on and on the list could go. And these four men, and probably the paralyzed man himself, they thought that what this man's primary need was, was to be healed of his paralysis so that he could walk again. And certainly that would be life-changing, But when that man was lowered through the roof next to Jesus, the Lord looked at him, and he knew that there was a much greater need than the physical one. And so Jesus healed the real problem. Recognizing their faith, he looked at him and he tenderly said, Son, son, your sins are forgiven. Now please listen carefully right here because this is vital. The greatest need you have in life is God's forgiveness. The greatest need you have in life is God's forgiveness. You can have all the money, all the stuff, the beautiful family, the great house, the boatload of friends, all the fame and fortune, and it will not fill that gaping hole in your life. In your life, in my life, there is a hole in our soul that can only be filled by Jesus. And the greatest need you have is not more stuff. It's not more connections. It's not more of anything. The greatest need you have in your life is God's forgiveness. Now, that's not why they came to Jesus. If we could have listened to the conversation between this paralyzed man and his friends before they came, I suspect what they weren't saying was, if we could just get Isaac to Jesus, he could, heal, he could forgive his sins. No, what they were saying was, if we could just get Isaac to Jesus, he can heal his body. They were after physical healing, but when the four men dropped their friend through the roof, Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. There was something about these men and this man, and it, they had such trust that Jesus could help them, that they would not let any obstacle stand in the way of reaching Jesus. And so Jesus saw their faith, and he was touched, and he speaks so tenderly to him. This is one of the most tender moments in all of the Gospels, and he addresses him as son, child, child, And he says literally, forgiven are your sins. He went right to the point of this man's greatest need and he delivered grace. In a world that clamors for health and wealth and prosperity, it is vital that we understand that the kingdom of God takes the world's values and turns them upside down. In God's economy, spiritual is much more valuable than material that's why jesus says in matthew 6:33 seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you for the one who follows christ our first priority must be our relationship with christ seeking his forgiveness seeking his presence in our lives above anything else And that's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy because it's so easy for us to be consumed with a hunger for things, for success, for what we think those things will bring us, that they'll bring us satisfaction. And in fact, that is the very definition of idolatry. Idolatry is to value something else above our relationship with Christ. That's why idolatry is right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments because virtually all other sin is rooted in idolatry. All of our other sin in our lives grows out of our tendency to value other things above God, whether those are material things or physical things or or even our hunger to be loved and admired. Anything that we place as a higher priority than our life In our life, then, our relationship with Christ becomes an idol. Now, think about it for a moment. In your life, are there idols? Is there something in your life that you value more than your relationship with Christ? That's an idol. And idols will devastate your life because they will divert your attention to other things when the greatest need in your life is God's forgiveness. And so Jesus lovingly, tenderly responds to this act of faith by giving this man what he needs the most, grace. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And though we are not paralytics, most of us enter this room with, under our own power or with just a little help. We were all able to walk into this room. It's still true that apart from Christ, we're just as paralyzed. What you and and I need more than anything else is the forgiveness of Christ. We need his grace. But there's something else that happens in this story. As soon as Jesus extends forgiveness to this broken man, there were some in the room who objected. Let's pick up the story again. Look again at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So already, this is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and already the critics are turning out. And so there are these scribes, that they're, mentioned, they're mentioned here as scribes, they're the teachers of the law. They're the scholars, the religious officials, the one who teach based on the law of Moses. And when they hear what Jesus has just said, that this man's sins are forgiven, they understood the implication very clearly. They recognize that Jesus is claiming for himself power to forgive sins. That's something only God can do. It's interesting to notice, though, they don't say anything out loud. These are not the most courageous bunch. They're in a room filled with people that have come to see Jesus. And so they don't out loud say, wait a second, I object to this. But they're thinking it in their minds. And it doesn't matter they don't accuse him out loud because Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. And so he responds to them. He calls them out by saying, which is easier? Is it easier for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven? or to tell him to pick up his bed and go home. Clearly, they thought it was easier for him to say the sins were forgiven. I mean, after all, how can I prove or disprove that someone's sins are forgiven? But if I claim to heal someone and there's no healing, then it's very clear that there's been a failure. So in order to confirm to his opponents that he does indeed have the authority to forgive sins, to give spiritual healing. Jesus then proceeds to offer physical healing. He says to the scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins here on earth. I turn to this man and say, get up, pick up your bed, and take it home. And without hesitation, this man whose faith had resulted in his forgiveness of sins, now hops off of that bed, I suspect with a bit of a skip and a jump, takes off through that house and heads on home, while the rest of the crowd looks, their jaws dropping, looking in amazement, saying, we ain't never seen anything like this. Nothing more said about the scribes, not in this story, but certainly they left the house more than a little bit unsettled. Now, wouldn't it be great to be able to say, the scribes saw what Jesus did, and they said, amen, hallelujah, God must indeed be in this man, and they could have joined in the celebration. But that's not what happened, is it? Because we read as we continue in the gospel that the scribes continue to object to his work. They continue to oppose what he's doing. They're holding on to their bitterness about Jesus. You know, it's a reminder. Even religious people can become opponents of God's work because they hold views rigidly about how God must work their way. They have their prejudices, their even jealousy sometimes toward other ministries that succeed. Remember something. Churches are rarely damaged by pagans. Pagans. They are broken by religious people who would rather see a church die than see it change. Well, Mark tells us that when the crowd realizes what has happened, they begin to praise God, saying we never saw anything like this. And even though they were expressing amazement at the second miracle, the physical healing, I suspect most of them did not even realize that a greater miracle had taken place first. The miracle of forgiveness. The miracle of God's grace transforming a life. Charles Stanley tells a story about one of his more remarkable seminary professors. The the man had a way of illustrating to his students this concept of grace. So at the end of the course that they were taking, he had the final exam. The day came for the exam, he would hand out these exams. But as he handed them out, he said, now please, a note of caution. Read this test all the way through before you start answering it. And there was even a a written note at the beginning, read the test through before you start answering it. Well, as they started reading the test, one by one, the students started realizing they had not studied nearly enough. This was a hard test. This was a test that went beyond hard. This was an incredible test. Stanley says, the further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, you could hear audible groans in the room. But on the last page, there was a note. It said, you have a choice. You can either complete the exam as written or sign your name at the bottom. And in so doing, receive an A for the assignment. He says, we sat there stunned. (laughs) Was he serious? Just sign it and you get an A? He said, then slowly, the point dawned on us. And one by one, we signed our names, turned in our test, and filed out of the room. He said later, he went back and talked to the professor about it, and the professor shared some of the reactions through the years that he had received. Some students would, even though he'd cautioned them to, start re- to read it all the way through first, he said some of them would start right in on the test. And they'd spend the whole two hours of class time working and laboring through the test until they finally got to the last page. Then there were others who would read the first page or two and they'd get furious at how, how tough it was. They'd get angry and then they would just end up turning the test in blank without signing their name, without ever reaching the last page, without ever seeing what they were missing. There was one fellow that read, the, read it all through, including the note at the end but he decided to take the exam anyway. He didn't need a gift. He was going to earn his grade. And he did. He got a C+. Plus. <laughs> but he could have had an A. S- story illustrates many people's reaction to God's solution to sin. Some people look at God's standard of moral and ethical perfection, and they just throw their hands up. They just surrender. They say, why even try? I can never live up to that. Others are like the student who read through the test and were aware of the professor's offer, but they said, I'm going to take the test anyway. Unwilling to receive God's gift of forgiveness, they want to set out to try to rack up enough points with God to earn it. But God's grace really is like that professor's offer. It may seem unbelievable, but if we accept it, then like those students who accepted the offer, we will discover that yes, God's grace truly is free. All we have to do is accept it. The greatest need you have in your life is God's forgiveness. And the good news is, You can accept it, and you can share it with someone else. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, how amazed we are at your grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, right now, we just celebrate what you have done for us in Christ. And yet, Lord, there may be someone here who has never experienced that grace in their own life. They may never have come to know what it is to be your child. And Father, right now, I just pray that your Spirit would work in their life, would draw them to that moment of decision to accept your grace, to receive your forgiveness. Perhaps there's someone that needs to just renew that relationship with you that they've known you, but now they've let idols get in the way. And there just needs to be a time of recommitment. Father, there may be some here that You're leading them to come be a part of this fellowship of believers. Whatever the decision that needs to be made. Lord, right now we ask that you would take this time and let your spirit have his way. That you would accomplish your purpose in these moments. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.